At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Good seeing you guys today. Happy hey. Friday. Hey, Alana. It's good to be back with yes. you and our fabulous producer, Melanie. Mm-hmm. Melanie, yeah. I know you've been tracking everything that's going on in the world of true crime this week. What is, uh, what's the update? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think there were some, obviously, some Buster, not Buster Murdoch, um, Oh, Alec. Alec Murdoch. I don't know why I was... Poor Buster. I feel like poor Buster. He gets mm. a, a hard time being the son. Um, but Alex Murdoch, you know, isn't there some sort of update, Heather, you were telling me about? Well, yeah. So I saw that um, he had his phone and like iPad or tablet privileges taken away in prison this week because him and his lawyer used one of the devices to record an audio interview for, I don't know if it's a magazine show or a, like, but anyway, that wasn't supposed to happen. And so he's, he got his hands slapped a little bit. Mm -hmm. He's had a few issues like that. Remember during the trial when Buster was trying to give him a book or, or maybe his sister was trying to give him a book during the trial, like a fiction book, but then they got in trouble because of that. I guess you're not allowed to, at least in that setting. And so they made the family have to sit a little bit farther oh, back wow. away from him. Yeah. He definitely just doesn't feel like the rules apply to him. <laughs> yeah. Some people are just like that. Yes. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. When you said you've been uh, finishing mm-hmm. a good, was it on Netflix documentary this week while it doing was, laundry? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely doing laundry and some computer work. Debt v. Heard. Oh. Yeah. So I, I was kind of watching from the periphery, everything that was going on during that trial. Um, but it's really interesting to they kind of delve into the YouTubers who are watching it. And there's a lot that became famous and made a lot of money on just live streaming and talking about the trial as it was happening. So that was really interesting. Well, I think that's how Emily D. Baker, I don't know, that's how she got her start on YouTube. But I definitely think she was like one of the big depth be heard. Yeah, she was really into it. I think that was when she got her um, viewership um, went up really, really high. Yeah, I think I was mentioning that I I only came across her when it was the Murdoch mm-hmm. case. And, but during it, she was referencing a lot that it happened in the Debbie Heard that 100% went over my head. Did you did y'all watch that case when it was occurring live? No, didn't. I can't mm-hmm. stand Johnny Depp. Really? Yeah. I, I like Johnny Depp in movies, but I don't like his persona kind of in real life. Um, and I don't know. I, I felt like weird in the little bit I knew about mm-hmm. the case. Like, I just felt like it was a voyeurship that mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in watching. Mm-hmm. It it was it just seemed sad to me. Sad if if it was true, sad. If it wasn't mm-hmm. true, uh, there was nothing good. Now I kind of will want to watch the documentary, but watching it live, I felt it was, like was a little bit cringy. Right. Yeah, but but that's funny though because you were hooked on the Murdoch stuff. I think maybe like there were something bad, you know, mm. happened with it, in the situation of the Murdoch and a murder. Um, 
he wanted justice. Like, there was no justice for Depp and Hurt. They're both just out to get each other and, like, Mm -hmm. burn things to the ground. Mm -hmm. You don't feel vindicated no matter who Mm -hmm. wins in that case. I think so. Yeah. I kind of get that because we're talking about Jodie Arias today. And I kind of feel like, from what I understand, she was kind of the kickstart of everyone watch like being glued to court tv and watching this live coverage of trials just nonstop. so that kind of was a, like a nice segue yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a good segue yeah. intentional <laughs> that was not pre-planned no but not at all so uh nice when it actually comes I'm out that way getting good at this podcasting stuff oh crazy <laughs> look at that <laughs> we're making connections without <laughs> even trying Okay, so Jody Arias, I want to hear it. All right. right. Okay, so today we're going to be in Mesa, Arizona, talking about the brutal murder of Travis Alexander and the woman currently in prison for his murder, Jody Arias. But before we get into the specifics, I want to warn listeners that this was a gruesome crime that was sexual in nature. So if you're listening with some younger ears around you, you may want to continue listening without them within earshot. Okay, can we just say, like, younger ears are probably not for this podcast, so put your, like— you know, put your earbuds in. Well, even um, like I let my thirteen-year-old listen to it. There's a there. I think there were one or two I didn't let him listen to, but this one for sure. Even though he's thirteen, I don't necessarily want him listening to this one. So That's fair. So as we do on every episode, let's talk about the house in the neighborhood. Mesa, Arizona, is in the county of Maricopa and is the third largest city in Arizona after Phoenix and Tucson. Mesa is actually only twenty-five minutes due east of Phoenix, so it's really a type of bedroom community. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I I mean, I always heard of Mesa, Arizona, and I looked at it on a map. I'm like, oh, it's like Arlington from Dallas. Yeah. I mean, you're like, yeah, you know, it seems like a big city, but it really is like right. the Phoenix metropolitan area. Gotcha. Right. So Travis Alexander's home, purchased in 2004 for $250,000, was located in a subdivision called Mountain Ranch. Built in 2004, it's pretty large, 3,700 square feet, five bedrooms, three bathrooms, and a three-car garage. Most of the homes in this master plan neighborhood look similar. The Mountain Ranch neighborhood looks like, to me, like how I would think a desert home would look like. It has that tan stucco exterior, darker tan accent paint on the garage, window frames, and shutters, and of course, the terracotta tile roof. You know, we've talked about how beautiful terracotta roofs can be and how they're associated with sort of an old world Spanish, Italian, or Mediterranean feel. It made me want to look up a little bit of history, and I don't want to bore y'all too much, but (laughs) but I'm going to talk about terracotta for a second. Terracotta roof tiles, or architectural terracottas, as archaeologists refer to them, were invented in Greece in the 7th century. Terracotta tiles are fire and waterproof and are usually spotted in dry, hot climates. Colder climates are not terracotta-friendly because despite their being strong against wind, heat, and water, they are very brittle and constant exposure to freezing temperatures will cause cracking. So there's your little history lesson. I love it. And uh, side note, if you have one of those roofs, that's awesome. Make sure it is properly insured. Mm -hmm. I had some clients looking to buy a house with one of these roofs, and it had had, like, I don't know if a tree branch fell on it. I mean, something pretty Mm -hmm. drastic. And it was over $100,000 to replace this roof. Yeah, Yeah. very expensive. So gorgeous and last a long Mm -hmm. time unless there's a problem. And then have either of you spent a lot of time in Arizona? I haven't. I've like breezed through on my way somewhere else. Yeah, I feel like you're our world traveler, traveler, Mel. I mean, just a little bit. My uh, grandmother lived there um, before she passed. uh, And so we went there a few times. And so I I remember it, but I was fairly young. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I've been to the Grand Canyon a few times. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that counts. 
I mean, yeah, it I've, is Arizona, but <laughs> I've done a com- couple of um, conferences in uh, Scottsdale, but like I've seen the conference center in the hotel at in Scottsdale, and that's about it. So. Yeah, I think I've been wanting to go to like Tempe and some of the more northern. I think Tempe's or is that Flagstaff? I might get be getting them confused, but I've been wanting to go to some of the northern Arizona areas that look really neat, and I do love history and mm-hmm. um, and I've been to. Uh, uh, New Mexico a few times recently, and I really actually love New Mexico. So I think I would like lots of areas of Arizona. It looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the terracotta roofs of Mesa, Arizona, and specifically what occurred within the walls of 11428 East Queensboro Avenue. On June 4th, 2008, Travis Alexander, age 30, was brutally murdered at the hands of his on-again, off-again love interest, Jody Arias. He was stabbed 27 times, His throat was slashed almost to the point of decapitation, and he had a gunshot wound to the head. He also had defensive wounds to the hands. Mm -hmm. Jody Arias, who was 24 at the time of the murder, met Travis at a Las Vegas conference in September of 2006. Travis was a salesman and motivational speaker for a multi-level marketing company called Prepaid Legal Services. In addition, he was a devout Mormon who also liked to perform a stand-up comedy. He had a difficult childhood with parents addicted to drugs until he and his many siblings were taken in by his grandparents. Sparks immediately went off when they met. In fact, after meeting her, he invited her to the company's formal executive dinner as his guest right away. She was beautiful with long blonde hair and a nice figure. She was very sweet and friends with, and friends said that Travis was immediately smitten. So the two quickly began a tumultuous long-distance relationship. Jody, an aspiring photographer, lived in California. By November of 2006, Jody moved in with Travis and Mesa and had been baptized into Travis's Mormon faith. Almost immediately, Travis's friends saw troubling behavior between Jody and Travis. She was very possessive. Friends said that she would follow him to the bathroom and listen in on conversations. She would go through his cell phone and emails as well. That's never good. Mm-mm. Nope. By June of 2007, the two break up, reportedly because Travis felt so guilty that they were engaging in premarital sex, which is forbidden in the Mormon faith. He seems to have taken his guilt out on Jody, though, with a few reports saying that in emails and texts, he called her things like slut, and he knew that he could never marry her because she was not pure enough. But despite the breakup and despite the guilt that Travis is reported to have fe- to have felt, the two regularly still met up for intimate encounters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. He, it takes two to tango, Travis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I read something about how he— Wanted to marry a you know a Mormon virgin, mm-hmm. um, which is all fine and well, but he is not right. Uh, uh, and you know he, you're right. I mean he's engaging himself mm-hmm. right there, so it's a little bit mm-hmm. of um, I can't think of that word. Gross. Well, okay, oh. yes, it is very <laughs> gross. Yes, let's keep it simple. So after breaking up, Jody moves back to California and Travis begins to date other people. Around this time, Travis's friends became concerned that Jody was stalking him. He reportedly once told a friend, don't be surprised if you find me dead one day, after she, in fits of jealous rage, slashed his tires, hacked into his social media accounts, and began stalking him at his home. But again, despite all of these seemingly red flags, they continued their relationship, their sexual relationship. Man, talk about red flags. I mean... I could see not wanting to marry her because she goes through your phone and mm-hmm. slashes your tires and tracks you down at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is, I mean, 
I got married at 21, so I didn't have a long dating mm-hmm. life. But like, what do you think it is that keeps drawing people back to each other in these bad relationships? I I mean, I don't know. Tri- childhood trauma, I think. I mean, I get, I get. That's my best guess. Like something happened that they're. I mean, he did have a, a traumatic, sad kind of um, life, and he obviously was, you know, very closeted in his kind of like his mm-hmm. sexually attraction, and yet also feeling a lot of guilt mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it at the same time. And maybe it was okay. Well, I've already dipped my toe in that water. Um, he didn't want to add to his count. Yeah. Well, because, uh, you know, he... Yeah, he might be right. I mean, he goes on to try and date a lot of the more target Mm -hmm. women that he's looking for. But want him to keep her in his back pocket is what it seems like. It was toxic. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. So let's fast forward to June 9th, 2008. Several of Travis's friends became concerned that he had not been heard from for a few days. He actually was planning on going the next day to Cancun for a company retreat with a Mormon woman, Mimi, he was pursuing. So Mimi and friends went to look for him at the Mesa home, used his garage code to get into the house. When they entered the house, they found one of his roommates who said that Travis was in Mexico. That's kind of weird, right? To me, there's a lot of weird things here. And sorry, there were reports that he had two or even three roommates. Mm -hmm. And so that he owned the home, but he was using having roommates Mm -hmm. in order to pay for the mortgage. Mm because I remember thinking, strange to me that he has a five-bedroom brand. I mean, this was a new-build house mm-hmm. in a master-planned kind of, you know, bedroom community. You don't see a lot of—I think he was, you know, late 20-somethings at the time buying a house mm-hmm. that big without mm-hmm. a, you know, a family or significant other. And so he just had a variety of roommates. I've I read a couple, or at least one or two of them, were also working for this kind of strange company that he worked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just seemed odd. But then I'm like, why did you use the garage code to get into the house when there were roommates there that right. you could have rung the doorbell? But do you think that's just like how they came in and out all the time? I mean, these are young these are young kids or young adults. Like probably everybody in his friend group had that garage code and they were like, just come on in. Oh, I, I definitely think they did because um, when she was kind of stalking him, she was going into the house um, with, um, with the garage code. I mean, I would have changed the garage code at that point mm-hmm. in time. But yeah, it just seemed a little, the whole scenario seemed odd. But yeah, I thought it was kind of crazy that the woman he was going on this trip with was the one, because she was part of the friendship group, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some of his friends were already at the conference in Mexico, and so they were uh, messaging with Mimi and saying, hey, we haven't heard from him, and he's not replying to his phone, and they were supposed to be, like, flying out the next day to Cancun together, and so she brings some friends over to to the house. Uh, I mean, it was just, I don't know, it was just weird. Like, if you guys were at a on a trip that I was coming to and you were texting me, like we would be back and forth all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you know, this is so fun or. Yeah. I mean, I I oftentimes think what would cause me, especially, you know, as an adult to go over to one of my friend's houses and kind of check in Mm -hmm. on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, sometimes I'd be like, wow, maybe they're ghosted me. They're, you know, not wanting to be my friend anymore. I, I don't know what would. But then I'm like, okay, if I had plans and I hadn't mm-hmm. heard from you, I'd be like, okay, that that 
kind of puts me over the edge. I'm going right. to go over and check on you. Right. Well, and there's probably one final message that's like, hey, I'm really worried if I don't hear from you mm-hmm. yes. coming over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. that gives you a little more like, oh, okay, now it's time to go. Yeah. Right. Right. So with Travis's roommates, the friends were able to gain access into the into Travis's bedroom where they found pools of blood leading up to the bathroom where they found Travis's decomposing body curled up in the shower. We later find out that he had been dead with his body left in the shower for five days. Yeah. I mean, yeah, five days is a long time. And one of the weird things about the story is, once again, that he had roommates. And that I read some of the um, kind of the quotes from the detectives Mm -hmm. that as soon as they entered Mm -hmm. the house, they smelled decomposition. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you had roommates once again. And there was like one thing that I read. It wasn't a direct quote, but that the roommate thought it was like dirty dishes in the sink. Yeah, that's weird. I guess chalk it up to 20-year-old guys. I, not and that's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Even Mimi said she smelled something yeah. when she walked into the house. And yeah. so, mm. yeah. So one of the friends calls 911 and even mentions Jody's name when asked by 911 if there was anyone that she knows who may have wanted to harm Travis. When police get there, they begin combing over the home. They find lots of blood, including a bloody handprint on the wall, long brown hairs in the shower, and a digital camera in the washing machine. Police attempt to turn it on, but it is too waterlogged, and they aren't able to access anything on it yet. Police are pretty quick to bring Jody in for questioning. Her first alibi is that she couldn't have killed Travis because she was not near enough to Mesa to have done this. When this was quickly proven false, she stated that she had been with Travis the night of his murder, but that two masked intruders entered the home, murdered Travis, and threatened her if she told. She did not put a lot of thought into Mm -mm. this cover story. Because that type of... um, alibi has all ever worked. Right. Last mm-hmm. intruders and yeah. I was told not to tell. I feel like you hear that a lot in cases mm-hmm. and it never proves to be true. Right. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems as though she changed her story for a third time when confronted with the evidence that they were finally able to obtain from the digital camera memory card. The photos that pulled were damning to say the least. Among the photos were nude pictures of Jody lying on the bed, Pictures of Travis naked on the bed, pictures of Travis suggestively posing in the shower, and finally, there were two photos of Travis lying on the bathroom floor, bleeding heavily, all time-stamped June 4th, 2008. Investigators, though, did not buy this intruder theory and charged Jody with first-degree murder. Investigators also discovered that a 25 caliber gun had gone missing from Jody's grandparents' home a week before the killing, and it matched the caliber of the bullet casing that was found in Travis's bedroom. In September of 2008, Jody is arrested and extradited to Arizona, where she spends the next four years awaiting trial. It is during this time that she gives a jailhouse interview with the TV show Inside Edition, where she states, quote, no jury is going to convict me. I am innocent, and you can mark my words on that, end quote. It is also during this time, just before her trial starts, that Jody finally confesses that she did kill Travis. What do y'all think about that? Four years before the trial? Mm-hmm. Seems like a long time. Right. Yeah, when did they, why did they say it took so long? I'm not sure. Did you I notice that? see, moment? but I mean, once again, it all comes back to the Alec Murdoch case. And I mean, that was a fairly speedy by, by this comparison. Four mm-hmm. years, well, you know, just, I don't know. It just seems right. like a long time for yeah. me. Yeah. 
So let's fast forward to the trial. Opening arguments began January 2nd, 2013, and it quickly turns into a media circus, partly because of the salacious details that are quickly alleged by both sides. The prosecution paints Jody as a jealous, calculated ex who attacked Travis when he attempted to end their relationship. Alternatively, the defense alleges that Travis had been violent and abusive during the course of the relationship and that Jody had only killed him after he lunged at her in anger. Jody testified for 19 days, relaying her sex life with Travis, often in graphic detail. At one point, the jury even heard an X-rated phone call between the two. The defense continued to assert that Travis was abusive, mentally and sexually, that he was a sex addict, addicted to pornography, even alleging that he had an affinity for young children. Hundreds of text messages between the two were made public and entered into public record. And they were explicit. And I'm not going to share what they said because my parents listened to the podcast, but you can go online and read it. It's your parents yeah, listen. Yeah. Hi, Mom. <laughs> so the defense is essentially, essentially putting the victim on trial, and people are here for it. Outside of the courtroom has a line of people waiting to get in and is packed inside every day. Additionally, it is played out on live TV every day. Why do you think this case had like so much TV interest. Yeah, I mean, yes, she's young and pretty. I, well, I think it's the sex stuff. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, they didn't really know that all the sex, I mean, I guess they did know all the sex stuff was going to come up probably. probably more than likely. Yeah. I mean, I think that people like salacious details. Like, like when you were talking about the, um, uh, Johnny Depp versus mm-hmm. Amber Heard case. I think that some of these salacious details, I mean, like, I was even trying not to sort of pay attention to it. And I kind of heard about some of mm-hmm. their their lives and their private lives. And I think that people were just like, like voyeuristic, like, mm-hmm. ooh, what's interesting going on there? Plus the fact that she presented herself as a very pretty, um, and some of the scenes that she was almost like um, like a pretty librarian mm-hmm. was what some people described her as. Right. You know, people are like, oh, nobody young and pretty and 24 could ever commit a crime. It must have been the man's fault. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we have heard a lot of uh, male um, killers on, mm-hmm. on this podcast. Make no mistake, there's, you know, lots of um, bad guys out there, but there are bad women mm-hmm. out there too. And I think that people didn't necessarily want it to be her. It's interesting to me today, even after, you know, several years later, there are like websites devoted to freeing Jody mm-hmm. Arias and um, like books trying to, you know, talk about it. And I don't know, it seems like a pretty open shut case to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could see if you know, he was abusing her and it was some sort of like self-defense, there being a case that you could make there. But she just kept coming back and coming back. I mean, with the the stalking and the breaking into his house. And I mean, it didn't seem like she was trying to get out of that relationship. No, I mean, well, she was dating someone else, but at the same time, it was like an addiction for the two of them. Because mm-hmm. um, he was too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they kept coming back to each other for some reason, and this, you know, he was right before he was going on a uh, trip to Cancun where he was trying to uh, pursue another woman too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. but none of his friends knew about this sort of 
secret life of him. Like, you know, like did not, they knew about the bad relationship and the stalking and, but I think he kind of put a front on for his friends. I mean, he obviously wasn't telling uh, his circle of devout um, Mormon friends that he was still having an affair with her behind right. the scenes. Yeah. Well, I just want y'all to know that I'm an open book. What you see is what you get. So if something ever happens to me, there's no juicy details. Oh, got it. Yeah. We should so, look, sure. for the, yeah, look for the crazy double yeah. life. Sure. <laughs> but remember we said we would ha- form that um, Nancy Drew oh, committee. Yeah, yes. We will get down to it. We will, we will dig into <laughs> all of your issues. All right. Good luck. They're, they're not... Many. No, no, not at all. So for the prosecution's part, they called many experts to the stand, and and they were able to paint a more detailed, verifiable account of what happened, including how she obtained that gun several days before the murder. She's so dumb. She did a lot of really dumb things. Like, let me go get a gun that could be traced back to my family. Right. And um, now why not take the camera with her? Yeah. Or I mean, she took pictures before and after mm-hmm. And then put it in the washing machine. Mm-hmm. I, I, they're so, mm-hmm. yeah, so smart. So ultimately, the, the defense's methodology of putting the victim on trial backfired. Backfired. Oh, backfired. Just backfired a little Back, bit. Backfired yeah, like is it. what. Yeah, I stand by that. On May eight, two thousand eight, jurors found Jody guilty of first degree murder, though they could not reach a consensus as to whether it was premeditated or not. On May 16th, the penalty phase begins, but a hung jury was declared after they could not decide unanimously whether Jody should receive the death penalty or life in prison. Ultimately, a judge sentenced Jody Arias to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Jody is currently serving her sentence at the Arizona State Prison Complex. I just wanted to point out that I did not feel bad for either party. Like, I mean, I feel bad that someone lost their life in this brutal manner, but I don't feel anything towards Travis. Like he sounds like a like bad him guy. as a person. He just sounds like sneaky and and secretive and hypocritical and hypocritical. That's the word I was trying to look for earlier. Oh my gosh. That was totally the word I was trying to look for. <laughs> so so yeah. that kind of bums me out. Yeah. I mean he didn't deserve to die for no, that for sure. No, for but, sure. You know, maybe maybe not Color a slut and a whore and things in text messages. Yeah, I do think it's really bad to to be sleeping with somebody and be like, yeah, I mean, you're fine to sleep with, but I can't marry you. Right. Can't tell any of my friends that we're together. Yeah. Right. But that is absolutely no excuse. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, for sure. For sure. Do you want to know what happened to the house? Yes. Okay. So 11428 Queensboro was purchased in 2009 for $206,000. After seeing more than 150 vandalized or foreclosed homes on the market, a family of five made an offer that was accepted by the estate. Here's the crazy part, though. They had no idea of what happened here prior to submitting the offer, but were made aware before signing the paperwork by their realtor. I guess they didn't think about why the house was missing pieces of carpet along with the bathroom faucet and shower, which had been collected for evidence. Okay, so... That blows my mind. And I'm not sure what the disclosure laws are in Arizona. But, um, I mean, I guess we could get Mel to Google that for us real quick while I tell you the story. But um, I actually saw a show on this story and this house. Mm-hmm. I think it was called like Murder Flip House or Murder Flip Home. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but it had this couple on there and they were interviewing them. And they, I mean, they were adorable, but they were like, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was a great house. It fit our budget. We decided just to to move forward with it. Yeah. 
It's like, that's crazy. That is crazy. I don't feel like they had enough time. Right. Like they just wanted to go. They should have been given like a right. week or two to really Process. consider, maybe do some research on the case. Right. But, so the same show, and I apologize if I'm jumping ahead in your story. So they pulled up all like the carpet and tile and everything in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And then they did luminal and there was still blood. Oh, wow. That's wild. Isn't that awful? See, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about attachments. I mean, that just, that's there. Yeah. Like, well, like you it, can it see was. and not see. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Did I send you on a wild goose chase? It, oh, I think it's, well, what I'm reading on an Arizona law website is an Arizona law does not require a seller to disclose if a property is the site of a natural death, suicide, or homicide, or any other crime classified as a felony. Um, yeah. So it does not. So it was nice of that realtor, though, to let them know. Well, and this was happened? after their offer had already been accepted. Right. Um, but, you know, I guess in... I have to think this was back in like, you know, 2008, nine time period. And I, I, as much as I think of that being that not long ago, I also wonder like nowadays, I mean, I Google everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I Google all the time, anywhere I'm going or, you know, anything. And I feel like if I was, you know, just putting an offer on a house, I would Google it, not necessarily expecting to mm-hmm. anything like this. Mm-hmm. I would Google it to be like, oh, what's the neighborhood like? Mm-hmm. What is the school's, um, you know, oh, I, make sure there's no sex felons living next door. I don't know. I guess nowadays, you know, we just Google so willy-nilly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I read that after she Googled it, as soon as they heard it, then they found right. about it. Right. So the wife was concerned, but the husband insisted that it was a great house and a great neighborhood and a great school district. So they completed the purchase, not realizing that the story would soon be catapult into national news. Oh, yeah. wait. The family lived there during the trial. Oh, that's what I was saying. So yeah. thinking of the timing, the mm-hmm. trial had not occurred yet. So right. it wasn't quite as, oh. Yes. Can you I imagine living there during no. that? I mean, no. they're talking about the all the gory and, you know, sexual things that happen in this house that you are living with your husband and three kids. and on. Well, and it's probably relatively easy to find and drive by. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, like some of these houses we've talked about have been up winding paths, sort of tucked away. This is just right in the middle of a subdivision. Oh, this is 15 minutes from the airport. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so, and this was like the big story of the year. This was all over court TV. So they were getting gawkers left mm-hmm. and right, slowing down, taking pictures outside of the house. I read something about one of the neighbors being, you know, worried for kids playing on the street because, you know, when you're kind of driving by and you're looking at the house, you're not mm-hmm. paying so much attention right. to the kids, you know, that are living across the street, running across to get a ball. Right. Right. I saw one report that someone knocked on their door one day, a woman who had been watching the trial, and the woman felt like she needed closure. <laughs> so she wanted to speak to the current homeowner. I'm like, what? That's crazy. People are weird. People, People are weird. Are weird. <laughs> so I the, really hope they didn't let her in. That, that's so creepy. Know, that's so creepy. So the home had a complete overhaul, and by 2018, the house was on the market for a price tag of 308000 a price that is much lower than what neighboring homes were selling for at that time. It looks to be worth over 500000 today, but that is not accounting for the tragedy that occurred in it. So this family doesn't live there anymore. Correct. I sold it. Right. Okay, that makes yeah. me happy for them. Right, yeah. And they still made some money on it, it sounds like. Yeah, I hope so. So good for them. Yeah, for sure. And they got to be on a TV show, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm kind of bummed about that TV show because I was kind of thinking we could have a TV show, but 
Yeah, I mean, I only watch like two episodes. And here's the thing. I can watch some really bad TV. And mm, what's that girl? <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, I just, I mean, you know. <laughs> Gotta call it like you see it. Yeah, that's right. I will always be honest with you. Yeah. It really wasn't Yeah, no secret here. No secret here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so buy it, list it, sell it. I'm probably a... I'm definitely a no to live there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I, I don't know. I wouldn't list it either because you don't have to disclose in Arizona and that would really bother me. I, I'm i a disclose, disclose, disclose kind mm-hmm. of gal. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. So I'm a no. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I find that my um, uh, desire to live or do it is more... Would I really think it's an interesting house or do I really want to live there my, you know, myself? So that probably clouds my judgment mm-hmm. about it. Um, and I also have an issue with more recent mm-hmm. events and like the death being there for like, you know, the, the man days. being there for like five yeah. days. Well, and it was in presumably the master bathroom. So yeah. I mean, you're, it's a space you're going to be in a lot, even if it's been remodeled. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like an out of the way vestibule or something that you can sort of avoid. Right. You just wanted to use the word vestibule. I did. I'm very fancy <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not drawn to this home. Yeah. I, I like how your your threshold is, is it on a beach? Does um, it have land? Is I, it in I, a I realize <laughs> that there is some snobbiness about There's it. There's not snobbiness. You just like what you like. You know, I'm like, if it was really amazing, I might want to live there. But if it's a house that looks like it's neighbor's houses and— Well, as I say, let's be honest. Like, this is sort of a cookie-cutter house. Yeah. That's not mm-hmm. your style. You mm-hmm. wouldn't live in a cookie-cutter house in Dallas. Like you like okay. sort All of right. some eclectic, different. I, I did like that this house had a big tree in the front yard. I looked at the pictures mm-hmm. of it, and you you don't, you know, in Arizona, you don't get that. Okay, you're laughing. Well, I'm just like, you're trying to find one positive thing to say. <laughs> it did have a nice. nice tree. Oh, okay. Right. Okay, what about you, Lana? Um, I think I would know on Live There, um, and I think I would list it, but I would probably tell the sellers that I wouldn't list it unless I could. I want to be able to tell people because I couldn't live with that on yeah. my conscience, not be able to tell people. You know, I mean, one other thing is this would, you would be like the third person uh, to sell it, like at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a lot harder well, to do it right away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, and I think that some of the challenges that those buyers had was it was during the case. It mm-hmm. hadn't been solved. I think now um, with a few years past, I don't think it's quite as in the news and people would be you know, interested. I didn't really know this case. Like, it, like I always knew the name Jody mm-hmm. Arias, but I think when this all occurred, I was living with like little kids, mm-hmm. and um, your I'm, brain was being used in other places. Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you too aware of the story? Well, yeah, but because I'd watched that horrible show. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like you. I just sort of knew the name before then. I knew it because my sister was obsessed with the trial. Oh. In fact, she's the one who she's like, you need to do this or I'm going to stop listening to the podcast. So, Oh, okay. Well, Elena's sister. sister. <laughs> we are giving a big shout out. <laughs> no, we need to be Elena's that. sister. Yeah. Yes, that's right. My sister was... Um, listening to one of the recent episodes the other day and she like was immediately texting me she's like you shouted out to me oh i felt like oh you're wow. famous laura we love you <laughs> oh my gosh that's so fun well next week mm-hmm. we are taking um taking a little detour to a state we've not been to mm-hmm. yet we're headed to oklahoma oh okay a i promise not to sing 
It's okay. A song? You can. Oklahoma? Yeah, don't you hear that word and you're just like, the song comes to your head? A little bit, yes. So I won't sing. But yeah, that's what we're doing next week. Yay. All right. So we'll see. We hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. <laughs>